how can you call yourself a citizen of the earth if if something is happening that's hurting somebody else and there's a chance that you can do something to improve it and if if you don't do something to improve it frankly you're an asshole what would you do all over again and why i'm natalie carpenter women's health and fertility advocate dot connector and former corporate brand warrior each week Join me in candid conversation with an inspiring public figure who boldly shares their real-life stories of adversity, impact, and what they did next, and if they would do it all over again, knowing what they know now. Welcome to the All Over Again podcast. Chef Michelle Nishan is a chef and pioneer of the good food, sustainability, and food equity movement. Michelle has 40 years of experience sourcing, cooking, and serving responsibly sourced food and working to make healthy fruits and vegetables accessible and affordable to low-income communities throughout the U.S. His nonprofit, Wholesome Wave, is the first food equity organization to influence permanent legislation in the federal farm bill. Chef Michelle is also an author of several cookbooks and a four-time James Beard Foundation Award winner. Chef Michelle Nishan shared that if he had the opportunity to do it all over again, there's very little that he would change. Listen in to find out more. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to All Over Again Podcast. It's so great to sit with you and chat. Thanks, Natalie. It's good to be here. Well, thank you. So I'm just going to jump right in. I'd love to learn a little bit more about you. Mm-hmm. Describe yourself in three adjectives. I would say determined, nimble. Actually, I would say th- three adjectives, two of them to go to perpetually determined <laughs> and nimble. And that makes perfect sense because of everything you've accomplished. That mm-hmm. seems to add up as far as I can see. So mm-hmm. what would you do all over again and why? I don't think I would change anything that I've done, even mistakes made over the course of time. It just, everything that really I've done, have accomplished, have failed at, whatever, it's like you you add it all up and it informs the things that you believe in and how you want to move about in the world and how you want to pursue your life. And I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good with where I'm at. I think if there is one thing that I might have done a little bit differently in would be to have waited until I achieved more notoriety before kind of getting into the world of cause. Because, uh, you know, you look at kind of the power of having followers in social media and I, I did, just didn't go down the television route. I had some opportunity and just decided not to do it because I was really kind of like laser focused on trying to figure out ways to effectively address food and nutrition insecurity and really threw myself behind that probably would have felt guilty as hell but just the opportunity to to have those platforms now because they're so prevalent that would be about the only thing that I would do differently just be able to reach more people but you already had street cred by that point oh sure yeah right in the culinary space oh, yeah. and world yeah well you know I, w- I always was doing things that were tended not to be popular yet <laughs> you know, uh, when i started heartbeat restaurant in 1997 it was a restaurant of well-being local organic sustainable no processed food of any kind so no dairy no butter no cream no flour no sugar all of that 
I was very passionate about it because I had made that connection between food and human health and really felt powerfully about it, but the world wasn't quite ready for it. I think it was a popular restaurant. It was controversial, but yeah, I, I had street creds because I, I was not afraid to do something based on my personal values, but also the impact that my decisions I knew would have on others. When you're, when you're a chef, you know that what you're doing is going to have a profound impact on the people that you are feeding, you know, the, the way you choose to prepare that food, it's going to go in their body. <laughs> so yeah, I'm always very aware of that. So I think the credibility comes from people just knowing over time and my consistent behavior that I would never do anything to harm anybody. If anything, what can I do to maybe improve their lives if I can is, is just a good way to, to, to rack up your karma. <laughs> That's a beautiful way to look at it. Yeah. And truly, you are an incredible innovator, right? You were a step mm. ahead the entire time. Mm. By the way, in, in terms of street creds, I did read up on you, and I do know that you are a four-time James Beard <laughs> <Yeah>. Award winner. <laughs> mm. I'm also mm. aware that you've written several recipe books, mm. and you have had restaurants as well. Yes, yes. Was Heartbeat in the W? Heartbeat was in the first W Hotel that opened. I recall. Yeah. At the time, Barry Sternlicht, who um, was the CEO of Starwoods, wanted an urban oasis. So ah. he and his, his, his wife were spa lovers. They were trying to do a deal with Canyon Ranch to take the entire fourth floor of the hotel. I was working with Drew Nieporent of the Married Restaurant Group. I was his corporate chef, food and beverage director guy, doing a lot of restaurant concepts for hotel companies who had given up on trying to develop food and beverage programs. We were doing those projects, but he, Drew and I had been talking about my frustration with cooking food that I wouldn't feed my family because my son Chris had recently been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and all of my research and all of the advice that I got from our endocrinologist was that what we would do with Chris's food would have more to do with the quality and the length of his long-term outcome than anything. So here I am in restaurants, you know, serving baby goat poached in apple smoked bacon fat, you know, loin of lamb with a bacon roasted shallot demi glace, you know, butter this, foie gras that, cream that. Hard to sleep at night when you're feeding people something you wouldn't feed your family. So I started working with Drew and he had his own vision because he was at that time over 300 pounds of a restaurant where anybody could come in and order anything that they wanted off of the menu and be safe regardless of their health condition, unless they were allergic to something like celery or nuts or whatever it might be. Food allergies aside, that it would just be a safe haven. And I had already become known, I was a very early pioneer in the kind of farm-to-table locavore movement. So Drew's point was, with all your knowledge of herbs and seasonal ingredients and all of your sourcing connections, there's got to be a way that we can do a restaurant without using all the things that tend to cause people the most harm. So that's, a, that's how Heartbeat was born. It was really an idea. He needed to do something about his health. I needed to do something to sleep at night because I wasn't going to stop feeding people. And Heartbeat was the result. Now, did you always have this knowledge about nutrition or was this something that came to you? I had no knowledge in nutrition, none whatsoever. I, I knew a lot about food. I could grow all kinds of food, raise animals. I knew what to do with the animals once, once you took their life, how to turn them into something delicious. My grandfather held on to his farm and we used to work it every summer 
spent our entire summer working my grandfather's farm. Me, my older brother, my cousins would all go down to Morley, Missouri and do that. So I knew how to can and pickle and ferment and butcher and cure and do all of those things. About the only thing I knew about nutrition was eat your vegetables. <laughs> you know, that was <laughs> my mom, you know. And a lot of it was supper table economics because she and my dad were never really well off. So if we had something like roasted chicken or smothered pork chops or something on the table, there were also collard greens, black-eyed peas, raw radishes, scallions, salad, sliced tomatoes, whatever it might be. In the wintertime, it was canned pickled beets, canned tomatoes. But we, we had to have some of every vegetable before we could have a protein, hmm. which ends up being a really so good way smart. to eat. Absolutely. But it's also how you can afford to put meat on the table when when, when you don't have a an ass-kicking income, you know? So, Absolutely. Yeah. I, at one point, used to believe in the five food groups because that's what I had been taught. Hmm. You know, I didn't understand or know until later on for a health-related reason that I needed to know about nutrition. Mm -hmm. I needed to know that it was important to eat in a way that was beneficial to my body. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I learned that it's really much more simple than the government tells us that it is, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. It's a good mm. protein, a good carb, and a good fat, mm. and you're good to go. Right. And a lot less protein than I had thought, mm. right? I had always thought, you know, protein is king, you know. Protein has to be like the lion's share of everything that I eat. Mm. And it turns out that, I mean, you're you're pretty good once you you hit the good mm. carbs bucket, you know, fruits yeah. and vegetables well, style. Well, the good carbs bucket include high quality proteins that don't necessarily come from True. animal sources, you know, legumes and, and, and grains and things like that. It, it's interesting. It's like the whole all protein, no carb, all of those things are radical intervention disruptive to your system interventions that you do because you've gone down the wrong road or you look in the mirror and you're unhappy with yourself and beach season is coming and you got to drop some weight. And it's like, so there, yeah, there are ways that you can manipulate your diet to all of a sudden shed some pounds, but rapid weight loss often is accompanied by very rapid and then overcompensatory weight gain. <laughs> you know? Right. It's like you get it right back and you gain more because you're putting your body through these shocks. It's just, it's really kind of nutty. So to me, it's in everybody's interest to figure out what the balance is for them. The one thing that, that I learned from studying a little bit about Ayurvedic principle is that not one diet fits everybody. You know, it's a, based, a thousand on, percent. based on your body type. Once you find what works for you, it's just a matter of sticking with that. You find it and stick with it. The majority of your your life, you're moving through life and you're following the tenets of a really solid diet. You, you can have fried chicken and you can splurge and it's not going to harm you. Exactly. Yeah. I, I feel the exact same way. I mean, you can eat the chocolate chip cookie. You can eat the French fries yes. once in a while, as long yeah. as it's not every, every single day. Every day, yeah, that's the thing. It's, it's kind of flipping it to where, wow, I put on a lot of weight. Maybe I'll have a salad today. <laughs> it's kind of like the other way around. It's like if you're eating a lot of greens, eating a lot of vegetables, eating salads, eating lean, lean proteins, getting your fat sources from healthy fats, you know, olive oil, avocados, et cetera, et cetera, all of which are delicious. I mean, what's not delicious about extra virgin olive oil, what's not delicious about an avocado. Right. And even animal fats, 
aren't as unhealthy as they're made out to be as long as you're not over-consuming them because they, they have a blend of saturated and monounsaturated fat. So one kind of mitigates the other to an extent. It's just figuring that stuff out, you know, learning some basics and pursuing something that works for you. I think that societally we have been conditioned to believe that animal protein is king. Mm. And so I think that that is what people believe is the healthiest diet, right? Mm. It's also a very Western luxurious mm. diet because there are places in the world that cannot afford to eat. Mm. I did the, um, the Cornell plant-based nutrition mm. certification. Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. It was yeah. really an incredible program. Yeah. I, I loved it and I learned yeah, so much. They really do. And there's this incredible concept that the whole idea around meat is as a luxury is also what is killing people because we have this only wealthy countries and populations have the ability really to afford meat in a more substantial level than right. others. And so it's this, well, and this support paradigm. support those systems of agriculture too, which are incredibly extractive and not kind to the environment. Actually, not kind to animal health and as a result to the human health. is, Or to ecosystems. Yeah, the, well, yeah, for the environment, the ecosystem, it's, it's a disaster. But the interesting thing is if you look at, you almost like go back to the way my grandfather farmed, meat was something that happened when an animal became too old to do what it was meant to do in the first place. So whether that was a, a working animal, a dairy animal, Right now, the, the average age of, a, of an animal that's life is taken for meat is between one and two years old, where an animal on a working farm, whether it's, you know, oxen, dairy cattle, whatever it might be, once it's kind of served its purpose, that older animal is very, very delicious. And the flavors are incredibly developed because they've lived for a long period of time. And if you're feeding responsibly and allowing the animals to pasture and not feeding them a lot of grain, which is really a feed program that's designed to put more fat, which increases market weight, but also gives you the marveling. So you get that like juiciness. They're delicious. Grass-fed, grass-finished animals are really delicious. They tend to be more expensive than meat, but you only need like three ounces of animal protein in any one sitting instead of a 12-ounce steak. And steak's only 8% of the animal. So it's like if you can, if you use all of the muscles of the animal over time, eating the right amount of meat, you can actually afford to buy far better meat that is far kinder to the environment and our own human health. But to do that, you have to get more of your protein from plant sources and eat lots of veggies and the right kinds of carbs and good fats, like you said at the beginning of the show. So, And I'm seeing where the inspiration mm. for sustainability comes from as you're speaking, right? Mm. Because so much of what you do is based around sustainability. Mm. I have a quick question. What was the average age on your parents' farm when, they harvested? when you harvested the animal? That is a much kinder way yeah, to say yeah, that, you by know, the you way. Could, you know, chickens, because we, we had laying hens and roosters, chickens were three to four years old because a chicken, a hen will lay about an egg a day, an egg every other day for a good two years. And then it starts to decline in its third year. And when it's finished, you're not roasting that chicken or frying that chicken because it's been alive and flapping around and running and chasing things for, you know, three years. You have to braise it for a couple of hours. It's delicious. So, Things like chicken and dumplings, chicken pot pie, mm. uh, you know, that's what those chickens are used for. But they're 
much more intense in chicken flavor than a 16 or a 20 week old broiler oven stuff or roaster type thing. So they're meat birds specifically that are raised for frying chickens and they're just a few months old when their life is taken, they're harvested and processed to turn into something. So our thing was, you know, why keep raising chickens and killing them when you can just like let them live and, and eat the eggs? So we ate a lot of eggs. I love yeah. farm raised yeah. eggs. Yeah, they're so delicious. So good. The yolk is a more orangey mm -hmm. color than what you usually get at the store. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are some brands that I love to get, but there are few and far between yeah. where you can tell like, wow, this is an amazing egg that came from a chicken that was fed very well and had hopefully a very nice life. Yeah, right. Well, and, and also just well managed because you can tell when you break the egg, if the yolk stands up and albumin and the white is still thick and it's not runny, mm -hmm. that's somebody who is moving a lot of eggs and not putting a lot of eggs in storage and drawing out of an inventory. So that's another thing that's, I, I think, really important because as, as the egg sits in the shell, the, the shell allows oxygen in so the, the egg can dehydrate over time and any nutrient is air volatile. So it's just a good idea to make sure that they're as fresh as possible too. So I think like Pete's does a good job. Pete's, yeah. Vital Farms seems to do a good job Yeah, Vital Farms does a good too. job, yeah, sure. Farmers markets. So your parents were farmers. When they were very young, they were farmers, but they ended up not being able. It was really my grandparents who were the farmers. So it was your grandparents. But how did that influence your career? When you have to work a farm, you know, you're surrounded by food all the time, and you're managing the food all the time, whether you're watering, whether you're weeding, weeding whether you're moving animals from pasture to pasture. Whatever you're doing, you're in the, you know, picking sweet corn, <laughs> getting it to market, turning watermelons over so they don't yellow spot. You're around it and, and you're cooking too. It's you know, farm families from the turn of the 20th century into mid-century. It's still at that place where 40 to 50% of Americans were either farmers or engaged in farming. And it was during those times impossible to find somebody who was farming that didn't know how to cook food and make it delicious. My mom was one of 13, and she had one sister, and the rest were brothers. And they all were exceptional cooks, all of them. Wow. Yeah, so, you know, they could, cured their own hams, they, chicken, catfish, pigs, goat, vegetables, roasting things, meat pies, vegetable pies, fruit pies, bread, biscuits. All of that was something that all of my relatives could do. It was just, it was a competency that you had. In your family. Like yeah. You grew up around. On my mom's side of the family. You grew up around <clears throat> this. Yeah, well, we, we were in Chicago, so it was the weirdest thing. You know, during most of the year, we were in a suburb of Chicago but you know, the minute we were out of school, we were on our way down to Morley, Missouri and working on the farm. And that's how we spent our summers. I actually thought it was a norm, you know, normal. When you're a kid, you don't think that what's happening to you is wildly different than anything that's happening to anybody else. I did know that 
when I came back, a lot of my friends weren't interested <laughs> in, you know, the stuff that I had to talk about. What what did you do on your summer vacation? It's, you know, it's like, wow, that sounds like a lot of work. So know? what did you do on these summer vacations? Yeah, I, you know, filled burlap bags with sweet corn and harvested vegetables and drove the tractor with the trailer to the farm stands to drop food off to, for, you know, because my grandfather sold at farm stands, but also was in, engaged in a barter system and then a meat locker system. And he was a, a diversified grower. So it was, you know, pigs, chickens, and goats, watermelon, sweet corn, root crop. There was a family vegetable plot. And then at the end of the summer, everybody would come down, drop the grandkids off, <laughs> And then they, everyone would come down to pick them up, and then we would can and pickle and cure. And then everybody went home with a U-Haul trailer full of food. Got wow. through the winter and stuff like that. So it was just, that was the thing. So there was a frugality. A farmer knows that field tomato today, by today's prices, like if you just want a red tomato, going to sell for about $2 a pound. A packet of tomato seeds, most farmers buy in like two-pound bags mm. uh, of seeds, but if you get a packet of seeds, you have somewhere between 70 and 130 tomato seeds in a packet for like $1.29. <laughs> and you get like anywhere from 12 to 20 pounds of tomatoes from a tomato plant. So it's like, why pay $2 for a pound of tomatoes when a packet of seeds is a buck twenty? Just like So the economics around it's just you're growing your own food, you're cooking, you're feeding your family. Yeah. And do you still grow at home? Yeah, we have a, a garden in our backyard. It takes up about a quarter acre. It's A lot of it's been converted to perennials mm -hmm. because when when we started the garden, I was in the restaurant business, so we used the garden to supply the restaurant so that I could serve things to people that, I, that we grew ourselves, you know, which was you really cool. You knew exactly how it was harvested. Yeah. You knew how it was grown. Well, I could pick it's like what kind of, there are all kinds of cool varietals of like heirloom tomatoes, you know, they're like the Marvel or the German stripe, which are those beautiful kind of half pinkish orange, half yellow tomatoes that are all marbled and yeah, stuff. Yeah. You know, there's, uh, I forget the name of, the exact name of them, but people call them peach tomatoes because they look like a peach. They have fuzzy skin on the outside. Interesting. Uh, green zebras, which is a striped green tomato that if you close your eyes and eat it, you don't think you're eating a green tomato because it's sweet and lush and ripe like a red Amazing. tomato, but it's green, you know. I want to do a tomato tasting now. Tomato tastings are cool. We used to do stuff like that. So, you know, Turkish eggplant, they're all, all different. We grow all these different varieties of beans. And it was cool because you could tell a story, but also show show folks that it's not like a bean is a bean is a bean is a bean. It's like, no, that's not the case. So know? many varietals. So many different varietals, right? And so many different things that you can do with them. So, so it's just fun to be able to take your own curiosity and get other people excited about the things that excite you as well and maybe change the way they're looking at food. Do, do you ever experiment with any foods? I, I know, for example, Dan Barber over at Blue Hill, right? He got really behind the whole squash. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Row Seven Seeds. That's his project. Yeah. Butternut squash. Yeah. Um, honey honey, honey nut, nut squash. Yeah. yeah. Which is amazing, and you can actually eat the skin, yeah, and it's sure. no—it's not strange at all. It's actually phenomenal. Did yeah. you ever do any sort of experimentation? Do you two no, work together, by the way? No, well, no, we've known each other for some time. So when I first opened, when I opened Heartbeat, I had been the chef de cuisine at Tribeca Grill. Then, then I opened Heartbeat, 
and the word got out about what I was doing. And Dan came quite a bit in the early days. He hadn't opened Blue Hill at Washington Square West yet, but we've always been values aligned. And, and we were basically at Heartbeat, we're doing when he wrote the third plate. I had left Heartbeat by then. But the, the whole notion of we're going to use grass-fed, grass-finished beef, and we're going to still be able to compete with the pricing structure of what was happening in Manhattan at the time with upscale restaurants without having to overcharge folks because they weren't getting any more than two or three ounces of meat, but then they were getting like really awesome black barley and cranberry gigante beans and heirloom varieties of pachoy and other vegetables. And you would take a journey on the plate where it's like the meat was a part of a component of it, but there were so many other things that were on the plate. All of it was delicious, but it allowed us to be able to not be more expensive than anybody else and still run responsible food costs and and have have um, a solid business model at the same time, but also be able to sleep at night because I knew that people could like come into our restaurant and eat, have a full meal and go home and probably be better than before when they came in through the door in the first place. So that was our goal with the restaurant. You're so passionate about food. It is so clear. <laughs> well, Food is pretty much something we have to do or we die. (laughs) This is true, but I mean, (laughs) you you made it your life's cause. And so Mm. was there a moment when you said, okay, I want to be a chef before Wholesome Wave and Wholesome Crave? Was there a moment where you thought, I want to be a chef or did you always know? No, no, I actually, I didn't. I wanted to be a musician is what I wanted to be. And I actually was in a band called Scoundrel in Chicago In the mid to the late 70s, I was very passionate about music. I am a huge lover of music and really wanted to be, I wanted to make it big. You know, it's like we- You wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to be a rock star, right? I, I just wanted to write music and play music and I just loved- the music culture, but it's it's really hard to talk about a a career where you really have to know somebody or be connected or just be damn lucky <laughs> to to actually be able to make a living at it. Very very tough. So my mom actually talked me into because I was I was living in a in a one bedroom apartment with like three other guys. I was in charge of like collecting rent from everybody. I'd often have to front other people's rent because these guys were like really irresponsible. I would like maybe buy a carton of eggs, like a packet of bologna and some pancake mix and and a little bit of like milk and have it in the fridge. And I would come home early in the morning from being out all night and all the food would be gone. Nobody pitched in. It was driving me crazy. And I was really thin. I think I was, I was six, two and a half and like 148 pounds. And my mom is like, Son, you got it. We we, we got to get you a job in a restaurant. You get a meal a day and a paycheck. You know, <laughs> so just, you know how to cook. You're a really good cook. She cut out some ads in the paper and drove me around until somebody hired me. This <laughs> is a, Chicago. Actually, this was in Antioch, Illinois. My first job was at Center's Truck Stop. They just tore it down about five years ago, but it was there for all this time on Russell Road, right at the Illinois-Wisconsin border before, if you're going from Chicago to Milwaukee, it was there. So that was my first job. That was my first cooking job. And then you loved it so much, you thought, or or did well, it just I, pay I, the I, rent? It was kind of cool because like, wow, a meal a day and a paycheck. I did like it because it was easy for me. It's not that the work wasn't hard, 
but I could work in almost like any environment because there it wasn't something that if I didn't know how to do it, there wasn't something that I couldn't figure out how to do with food. But I always also just wanted to make everything better. So I remember at this truck stop, they had the guy who ran the kitchen was this Navy cook named Jim, who was very difficult and a real <laughs> shoemaker, sloppy guy, the kind of guy who would like burn the bacon on one side and have it like almost raw on the other side. And he'd take the burnt side and like put the eggs on the plate over the burnt side. Oh like they'll never know. Oh. It's kind of like, no, eventually they're going to get to it, man. They oh. are going to eat that burnt bacon or see the burnt bacon and not eat it. That's that's not cool. How about let's just make sure the bacon is cooked correctly, you know? I, I remember um, one of the first things that I did because they had biscuits and gravy. And this guy was buying these big number 10. I'd never seen it. It was like a giant. They're called number 10 cans. They're giant. They're like this big. Hormel chipped beef. So it's creamed chipped beef. I'm sorry, doesn't, that sounds so terrible. Yeah, it doesn't taste anything like what you make biscuits and gravy with, which is basically a little bit of bacon or sausage fat or both, a little bit of flour for roux, salt, black pepper, and milk. That's what it is. And I just remember seeing the griddle. I had never seen a griddle before. And I'm like, what a wonderful invention, this big flat thing. You can cook <laughs> your bacon. It's got a little thing that catches the fat. And I'm like, we can make our own, we can make our own gravy. You know, they're buying frozen biscuits. I'm like, biscuits are easy. I can make like bis I can make like 500 biscuits in like 30 minutes. You know, it's like, why are we? And this guy's like, he was, he didn't want to make, want anything to be any harder than it was. He was all about convenience. So I came in early one day, like 45 minutes early, cleaned the griddle because it was a disaster, cooked off some bacon and some sausage, saved the fat, made the gravy and everything, made some biscuits from scratch and and the servers were like, wow, what happened? Everybody's so happy, real biscuits and gravy. And this gym guy came in after his day off and was so furious with me that I had done that. Wait, was, so was, yeah. was Navy Jim the owner or just the chef? No, Na Navy Jim was like the kitchen manager. Ah. So, and, and the owner, so the owner, and the owner was like in the weeds because they hired me with no experience because they were having a tough time with turnover because Navy Jim was such an unpleasant human being. And you know? clearly couldn't cook either. Yeah. And and the owner had a nephew named Emil who had come up from the city who was working in restaurants in the city to help out on the weekends. And when he saw me working, he's like, wow, you got skills. What are you doing here? Come with me. <laughs> you know, I work for this guy named Gene Sage, who's kind of like the the Drew Neeport or the Shelley Fireman or the Joe Baum of Chicago, the Danny Myers of Chicago mm -hmm. at the time. We're opening a new restaurant. You would be great. So you talked me into going down. I was still in the band at the time, you know, so it was in the What did you do of, in the band, by the way? I was a bass player. Okay. So anyway, it just, I could do both for a little while, but I was, once I got into better restaurants. And you were eating. I was, oh, totally eating. Uh, that that was like the greatest thing in the world. It's like at the truck stop, I could come in early, set up, make myself breakfast, cook breakfast, cook lunch, make a sandwich, take it home or have lunch, go home, take a nap, go go play in the band. You know, it's just like- You had a system. I was eating, yeah. Yeah. And, and w once I started working in the city, it's funny, I remember I had one job where we had an Alsatian chef. I didn't know what to call stuff. So there were like all these technical things in the restaurant business, like a the the piece of meat that New York strip steaks come from is called an 1180A hmm. strip loin. I wouldn't and know that. And on, on a farm, we call it a backstrap. <laughs> we don't call it a strip loin, right? 
I, we know you get steak out of it, but we don't call it a strip loin. And I remember when I moved from one of Sage's restaurants to another and they're like, yeah, this kid is really good. He really knows his stuff. And they're like, get me an 1180A strip loin. I'm like, what? what are you talking about? You know? <laughs> and they're like, okay, peeled potatoes. Uh, they, they had a leg of veal sitting on a counter one day during a grand opening and everybody was in the weeds. A couple of people didn't show up and they're just take like slicing chunks out of the veal as they go along and pounding it out for this kind of roulatini style appetizer that they were doing. And I'm like, I can do that. <laughs> I can do that. And everyone's like, yeah, you don't know what you're doing. You're peel potatoes type thing. But I'm like, I, re I could do that. Right. Did you do it? And I did. So finally, like the, one of the, one of the assistant kitchen managers, he was, I didn't know what anything was called. He like handed me, handed me a knife. He's like, don't, don't mess it up. Right. <laughs> and I, so I started seaming the veal out and they're like, oh, wow, he's a butcher. <laughs> right. Which I wasn't, <laughs> you know, but. But seaming, when you say yeah, seaming, I don't like, even know like, what that it's means. A, it's when you start breaking the leg down muscle by muscle ah. and taking off the inedible parts like the silver skin, you know, okay. um, that, that will never cook out. It's so funny. They're, they're like, oh, wow, wow, give me the eye of the round. And I'm like, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, you know, it look, kind of looks like a big penis. It's, it's a, in the middle of an animal, but if you, when you slice it, all of the veal scallopini is like the same size and stuff. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I know what that. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Here you go. They're like, he just doesn't know what to call stuff. So I remember the Alsatian chef was watching me. He's like, wow, you, you can break down a leg of veal faster than I can. He's, he's like, um, and then I started, finally let me on the hotline. And I was caught on to everything really fast. And after a couple of weeks, he's like, would you consider being a sous chef? And I'm like, what's that? It's like <laughs> $5 more an hour. I'm like, awesome, I'm a sous chef. And, you know, before long working that job at Sage's in Arlington Heights. And then I had a job at a upscale Denny's concept called JoJo's. During the day, I I've learned if I could, figured out if I could work both restaurants full-time at Sage's and part-time at JoJo's that I could rent my own apartment. I didn't have to have roommates, you know? So I was so Pivotal. into it. I was just like, and I'm just like, wow. I watched like this Alsatian chef, Jean Waits, would cook a stock and reduce a stock because I never knew how to do that. It was, everything was a broth to us. So I kept calling it broth and they kept correcting me. It's like, this is broth, this isn't broth, this is stock. But if you reduce it, you can mount it with butter. So I'm like, well, if you can mount it with butter, why can't, why can't you mount it with bacon fat, chicken fat, beef fat? It's like, you know, so I started screwing around with stuff like that. They're like, oh, wow, that's really good. Let's run that as a special, you know, Amazing. that kind of a thing. So it just, it I, I just caught on quick. So I, it was easy for me. It was hard work, but I mean, I was confident in the environment and I could make enough money to have my own apartment. I was in heaven. What was your first signature recipe that you remember making? My first signature recipe was a, a sauteed chicken dish that I served because I, I, I loved rice, was like one of my favorite things to cook. Then I had encountered saffron rice. I'd never encountered saffron ever in my eyes. And I'm like, wow, that's like just so vibrant. But it also had this incredibly unique flavor. So I really loved it. But I thought, you know, it needed, it needed like a little bit of zing. And I had discovered Dijon style mustard. So I, I did a dish where I would saute chicken breast strips and, and disassembled leg and thigh pieces, saute it with shallots with sweet peas and then julienne, red and yellow pepper, deglaze it with white wine, a little bit of heavy cream, 
some Dijon mustard and serve it over saffron rice. That was like my first special ever. And the chef was like, what do you want to call it? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. You know, chicken with mustard on saffron rice. He's, <laughs> He's like, like, not so much. You know, chicken Saint Michel. We're going to oh, call it perfect. chicken Saint Michel. You know, because he it. He's like, this is really delicious. What do you want to call it? I'm like, I don't know. This is, you know, chicken rice you know, with mustard you know, <laughs> and cream. You know, but that it's funny, and it's a dish that followed me for a while when I had my first restaurant in Milwaukee called the Fleur de Lis. That was on the menu. It was on the lunch menu because it was uh, just something that people really loved when I made it. People really dug it, so I knew it would be a popular dish. Sounds incredible, actually. It's it's just super simple, but it's delicious, yeah. Sounds amazing. So being that you are in the culinary space and you raised your your family around food as well, Mm -hmm. right? What went through your mind when your sons were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes? Yeah, so, well, they they were diagnosed many years apart. So Chris... Chris was diagnosed at age five in, I think it was like 1993 or 94. And then Ethan was diagnosed when he was just before his third birthday in like 2000, 2004. So it was a little bit apart. But with Chris, it was, I mean, the the first thing that went through our mind was we were horrified because there wasn't the internet at the time. So it just started trying to find health magazines and customers of ours were felt very badly for us and would bring us in articles on that. And it's like you, you, everything that we read was like, oh my God, we're going to, we're going to bury our child. Oh my God, that's you know? awful. It's the worst feeling in the world. There's no, no realization that it could ever be worse than that. And then not knowing when, you know, just not knowing when. But then we had a very forward-thinking endocrinologist. Her name was Patricia Egan at Yale. She was, you know, it's, it's really, it's not rocket science. It's type 1 diabetes, which is good because Chris is not insulin resistant yet. And that'll have everything to do with what he eats. But, you know, literally insulin is an amazing advance. And, you know, if he takes his insulin and now, now we can check glucose real time instead of peeing on a strip and getting what your glucose was yesterday, right? All these advances, he, it's like if, you, if you're just really careful about what you feed him, high quality fats, better quality carbs, don't pay attention to the nutritionist because they, they do the thing like an apple equals two slices of white bread. No, it doesn't. White bread's not a good idea. Apples are a very good idea. They don't act the same. Your glucose number might go up the same, but you won't crash as fast as if you eat a highly processed carbohydrate. So she had a decent knowledge of nutrition. And I'm like, okay, well, food, I can do that. You know, so I just, that's what I dove into. So it was, went from horrified to hopeful within about 10 days. <laughs> because like the first almost couple of weeks was nothing but horror. Horrifying. It sounds horrifying. It was terrible. It was really was terrible. It was devastating. I remember... When Lori and I told our two daughters at the time, Lauren and Courtney were four and five or something, and we had a nanny and everybody cried, you know, when we tried to describe to them what we were going to have to do and how we were going to just change things around the house. And 
it was pretty intense. But but like I said, once we figured out that food would have everything to do with the quality and the in the length of Chris's life, there was a tremendous amount of hope because we we had an income. We weren't wealthy by any means, but you know we had we had a stable income, and and I knew what to do with food. So that that's I threw myself into that, but it really didn't take long because I I had you know when I started at the Fleur de Lis, it was 1981. I was like 23 years old. You know, by the time that Chris was diagnosed, I was along in my career and had an established way of cooking. I was doing the local organic sustainable thing because when the one thing when I was working in those restaurants with the Alsatian chef is really crappy tomatoes coming in the back door. I'm like, wow, we're charging people like $19 for a veal dish with tomatoes and the tomatoes are like the worst tomatoes I've ever seen. But that's what was in the system. I just, I didn't know what had happened. <laughs> you were ahead of your time. That ingredients yeah. matter. Yeah. Well, so, so it's like I would take, when, when I finally was my own chef, I could take a seed catalog to corn and soy growers and, and pay them in advance to plant tomatoes for me so that I, so my customers could have a ripe tomato. That part of it I had down, but the more research that I did and back in, in the mid-90s, it still was fat made you fat. They, we had just identified the obesity epidemic was just being talked about. And the one thing that we knew from metadata was that Americans were trending heavier than all other developed countries, and Americans ate more fat in their diet every day than most other developed countries, so fat must make you fat. Americans have really high cholesterol. They eat more shrimp and eggs, way more than more developed countries do so, you know, so cholesterol must give you high cholesterol, that type. So it was the science of assumption until Walt Willett and his group started conducting the Framingham studies and the nurses and physician studies and really determining that highly processed carbohydrates are the things that ca cause you to create more fat and that things like trans fats create this, cause your li liver to produce serum cholesterol, which is the cholesterol that's harmful to you. That, you know, you eat eggs and that cholesterol doesn't impact your serum cholesterol, right? So eggs eggs went from being completely evil to being okay again, right? So I, I watched all that stuff happen. But at the time, I went with the information that I had. So when I did Heartbeat Restaurant, because I could not sleep at night, feeding people things with, you know, sauces mounted with bacon fat. And did Heartbeat happen after your sons were yeah, oh diagnosed? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, well, it happened after Chris. So Heart, Chris was diagnosed like 93, 94. Heartbeat opened late 1997, early 1998. Ethan was diagnosed in 2000, late 2003. But, you know, the ship had sailed. I was cooking food that I could feel good about, that I was not feeding my customers something that would lead to type 2 diabetes, which actually is worse. Not that either one of them is good, <laughs> but yeah, type 2 diabetes, especially as early as people are getting it now, because of the way they eat and conduct their lifestyle, is pretty catastrophic uh, once you become insulin resistant, right, which is most forms of type 2 are. So I just felt, I'm like, okay, if anybody get, goes there, it's not going to be because they ate at my restaurant. You know, I, didn't, I didn't contribute to it in any way. And if someone's actually struggling with them, I can help them, you know, uh, reduce their reliance on insulin, reduce their reliance on some of these other medications that, that they were on. And so many of the medications that you're on, when, when you're struggling with something like type 2 diabetes, the medications work better in the context of a healthier diet. So, you know, it's just, I thought, Always. I thought I was really 
really onto something, you know, at the time. And I was feeling really good about myself until, until I learned about, I started getting inv- invited to all these think tanks by folks like Walt Willett, Eric Shivian from the Center for Health and the Global Environment, because it's like a chef who got a three-star review cooking healthy food, not using butter, not using it. It's like, this is an anomaly, right? So it's in those forums that I learned about social determinants of health and and basically then the family of four that when they run out of SNAP benefits or food stamps in the middle of the month have 2 or $3 for all four people for dinner. And that was... That that just gave me a whole reason to feel bad again because I, I'm charging people like thirty bucks for an entree and, and patting myself on the back because I'm going to like save the world through food. Well, you were uh, looking at it from a, a healthier alternative, yep. You know, and that in and of itself was revolutionary, yeah. and, and that wasn't your clientele at the yeah. time, right? right? But when you think about that, it's it's interesting. You're talking about SNAP and food stamps, and you hear about these kids who are being raised on McDonald's and they are getting Diet Cokes and, you know, sent to school as their snack and lunch because that is more affordable than good food. It it actually isn't McDonald's often. It's like McDonald's is the thing that a lot of these low-income families, it will be a treat for their kids. Or something to normalize because it's like, you know, this this seven-year-old gets a Happy Meal. Why doesn't my seven-year-old get a Happy Meal? Let's get him a Happy Meal. Because when you have $2 for four people for dinner, it's 50 cents a person. Are you going to get $2 chickens and cut them in half and call that dinner? Sure. So it's really like ramen noodles with condensed soup or condensed milk, minute rice with condensed soup, Easy Mac with a can of tuna stirred in. That's the meal. So it's Really highly processed carbohydrates. The whole way through. Everything is, and and snack chips before going to bed. You know, because when you buy like the giant bag of the the little, I don't know how many ounces, of, or, you know, all of the different snacky things, I'm not going to name any brands, but it's a quarter of the cost of an apple. And it's so highly processed. Right, yeah. So where Diabetes you, yeah. contributor. Yeah, so so that whole notion, and, and also, you know, neighborhoods where people with low income live, there aren't grocery stores that sell produce, not because grocery companies are bad actors, but because that entire neighborhood and the surrounding neighborhoods are so low income, they can't afford to buy the produce. So it's like you you only open a full full service grocery store in a place where people can shop all of the aisles of the grocery store. The fish section, the meat section, the produce section, you make the majority of your money, you, you make your higher margins on perishables, but you have to sell them all. Mm-hmm. If you don't sell it, you have to throw it away. If you throw mm-hmm. it away, you lost a lot of money. So it's not, it's not that grocery stores are, are racist by not being in or, or being classist by not opening in what we call food desert communities, which isn't a, um, a term I'm crazy about but everybody knows what it is. It's They're not not there because they don't want to be there. They're not there because their model doesn't work, which is why a bodega or a corner store is basically the mini center aisle of a grocery store because that's the only thing that if that community can afford to buy, right? So, so it really is, you know, like bologna sandwiches, <laughs> go to school. I've seen Tupperware containers with SpaghettiOs, and that's lunch, cold. You know, I, I, you, you see it, you know, and it's just, again, it's just all highly processed, right? So, so when I saw that, I couldn't feel good about what I was doing at Heartbeat. I also, another thing that I was completely unaware of 
completely unaware of. I knew there are people that had problems with income. I knew there were people who were not as fortunate as others. I knew that. I had no idea how many. I had no idea how many. And at the time that I was doing Heartbeat, I think there were around 30 million Americans who relied on SNAP. I'm like, wow. how many? Wow. <laughs> how many? What's that number today, you think? Well, we're at around 40 million now, but That's there have been so times crazy. during the life cycle of Wholesome Wave where we've been up to 55 million people on SNAP. Oh, my goodness. So it's, that's a lot. Yes. I mean, that's just, it's an insane amount of people. And, you know, we hear uh, about all of the the pros and and the cons when it comes to raising the minimum wage, but it's like suppressing and keeping a minimum wage low because there's so few advancement opportunities. You look at the number of minimum wage jobs, far outnumber the advancement opportunities to get somebody out of a minimum wage job and nobody wants to pay overtime. You'll have a single head of household in the Bronx or in Appalachia that's working a full-time and a part-time job to make in a rural area $18,000 a year in an urban area, maybe $24,000 a year. And then making decisions that we're not going to, we're going to go to the electric company and turn our electricity off because you don't want it shut off, right? Because it's harder to get it turned back on. Turn it off voluntarily because you can't pay the bills so that you can put more food on the table. That's a reality for tens of millions of Americans. So, but there was no business model for it. It's like, how you, so I could do heartbeat, you know, and I could, I could have a restaurant. I could have a concept. I could, you know, I could get a salary. I could feed my family. I could feel good about what I was doing because the economics worked out. I had customers who could afford to pay for the food that, yeah, I was paying more for my food than other chefs were paying more for their food. My customers were willing to to pay a little bit extra, but you know, for for someone who's got fifty cents a person for dinner. There's no food truck. There's not. There's nothing really. There's so it nothing. sounds like it was killing you. So it was killing so, me. That's why I created Wholesome Wave. It was. So let's was talk a, about Wholesome Wave. <clears throat> so what was the moment? It sounds like you had a lot. It was a perfect storm. This yeah. realization that there is this, you know, forty or so, you know, million Americans that mm. they cannot put food on the table every night mm. for their families. What was the moment that you said, I'm going to, I'm going to do something. I'm going to make a change. And how did you come up with Wholesome Well, so, I, well I, I, so I was thinking about quitting again. It's so weird. It's like I hit these walls and I'm like, I can't do this anymore. It's like, I can't, I can't feed my customer something I wouldn't feed my family. I never went to college, you know, so I didn't, I never had the benefit of learning what critical thinking was and how to employ it though. It's actually what I ended up doing throughout my career, but it was a different, so I, I often took the long way around, you know, <laughs> but I, I, I would always find a way to, you know, my North Star so that at least I could sleep at night and build my, build good karma. Right. So I, I was just, I, I had hit this wall and also felt guilty because I had been patting myself on the back a bit about wow, I have a restaurant where if people like eat this food, they can prevent type 2 diabetes, they can maybe reverse it, maybe mitigate it. I had learned a lot about diabetes and I had all this like hope. And then I learned that my customers were maybe 5% of the general public and and close to 25% of the general public couldn't put food on the table. I'm like, this is too screwed up. I had a lot of trouble with it. And so I, again, I told Michael Batterberry, I'm like, yeah, he's 
He was like, you know, you got to stop thinking about quitting every time you hit a bump in the road. <laughs> you, you'll figure it out, you know. So he introduced me to this guy named Gus Schumacher, who at the time was in the Clinton administration. He was the he was the undersecretary of farm and foreign agricultural services in the Clinton administration. It's the third highest post in the USDA. You have the secretary of agriculture, the deputy secretary of agriculture, and then the secretary of farm and foreign agricultural services. You know, you have rural affairs, food and nutrition services. It's all the different departments that, that the USDA deals with. But farm and foreign ag services is how you set up and deal with the world. How do we make sure that American rice isn't being outcompeted by Asian rice? You know, all, all of that jazz. Dealing with milk in Afghanistan, you know, after the wars there, trying to reestablish the dairy industry, dealing with soy problems and deforestation and the Amazon. So that that's what Gus was dealing with, but his his proudest accomplishments were creating a, a farmer's market nutrition program for women and families on WIC and for seniors who are low income, where people could get a benefit every month, basically get fruit and vegetable money that could only be spent at a farmer's market so they could get the fruits and vegetables they needed to be healthy. That's amazing. But, because at the time, the WIC program paid for full fruit juices, vegetable juices, milk, cheese, things that were too expensive for people on food stamps to afford. So there's malnutrition in the 60s and it's 70s. Also not the best form of nutrition But in, in the 60s and 70s, we thought juices. they were. Right, right. Right. Education is really... Yeah, it's really changed. changed and, and now so we much. have just such great science behind it now. But anyway, so that it, it never included fruits and vegetables. So it's fascinating. So, so Gus was doing that stuff, and, and we ended up doing a bunch of hobby projects together, working in low-income communities. And it was like, how do we connect these low-income consumers with farmers who are often low income on their own, small and mid-sized farmers, don't have the access to markets, don't have the access to land and the resources and the lending that other farmers do, the ones that sell at farmers markets. How do we get them together and maybe, and it, it was always like an income thing. So it's, you know, when, when Gus talked about the WIC and the Senior Farmers Market Nutrition Program, I'm like, well, how much? So a woman, if she was pregnant, had two children, or had three children under the age of five, could get $26 a month for all four people for fruits and vegetables. That is scary. And a senior could get $15 a month. I'm like, that's, that's not that's, enough. That's we not need enough. to double that. So we founded Wholesome Wave on the idea of doubling those benefits. But when I learned about the size of SNAP and that it was 75% of the farm bill, of the USDA entire budget was 75% of it was SNAP for food. I'm like, we need to double that. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's, let's go for the big thing. That's how we found it wholesome way, but it was illegal at the time, but we had Gus. So he's like, well, let's get some waivers. Let's, if we can raise, if we can find people that are willing to, to fund us to do the work, we can get permission to try this to see if we can prove it. Because what we wanted to do was use private money to prove what would happen if taxpayer dollars were spent better. Mm -hmm. And then maybe we could influence that. So that that was the idea. So that was 2007 and by 2014. And, and Gus was like, don't be impatient, Michelle. You seem like an impatient person to me. This could take 20 years. 
By 2014, it was a $100 million federally funded pilot wow. in the 2014 Farm Bill. Gus passed in 2017, and in 2018, it was increased to $250 million, which made it permanent and named after Gus. So it's the Gus, Gus Schumacher Nutrition Incentive Program. So, so that was that whole notion of, you know, you see a problem, I'm feeding my customers things I wouldn't feed my family, and <laughs> change, change the way that I cooked. It was very risky because it was very unpopular. The people are like a restaurant that doesn't use butter. There were friends of mine that are like, Michelle, you're an amazing chef and your first restaurant ever in New York City is going to be a health food restaurant. I'm going to disown you. If you do this, I'll never talk to you again. I was like, people were trying to discourage me from doing it, but it's just, I couldn't not do it. You find about, you know, family of four, $2. How can you call yourself a citizen of the earth if, if something is happening that's hurting somebody else? And there's a chance that you can do something to improve it. And if if you don't do something to improve it, frankly, you're an asshole. <laughs> you know, so like, you're like a type I A. I don't want to be an asshole. <laughs> you know, like. You're like a type A empath. Who? You're like a type A empath. Em- you're What's empath- empath? Empathetic. Oh, oh, okay. All right. Oh, I didn't. Okay. No, empath. not like right, a not a like thing. a sociopath or nothing crazy <laughs> like that. A type A empath, right? Like yeah, you, you, I suppose. you're led by. Yeah. These emotions and you and you want to do them perfectly. Or I, sh- I don't know. Well, if as good perfect. as I can, I don't, you just you've just done them do in, a in a way that are diligent. Well, if there's any, it's the one thing. Like I credit, you know, my mom and my my grandparents on my my mother's side because they they really loved farming and really understood. They they loved food, right? They really loved food. My mom actually believed you could love people through food. And that my aunts and uncles believed all the same, right? They were raised that way. But when you're, you're working on a farm, shit happens, you know, and you yeah. got to, you figure it out. You yeah. can't say, oh my God, you know, it's just this, you know, something, a barn burned down, something is kind of like, you can't just do the woe is me. It's kind of like, okay, we're, how, how do we, you got to get up a temporary shelter. You got to borrow somebody else's barn, reach out to other people, collaborate, whatever you got to do. It's like something, something happens. There's, you always work your way around it. If people are no longer interested in a certain varietal of vegetable, you plant something else. Yeah. You know, you just, you just, you just move through it. Same thing, you know, in musicians, it's a lot of a, a lot about improvisation. So, so I improvise my way through. Got to give the listeners life. what they want, right? Yeah. Or give the consumer yeah. what they want. Well, yeah, it's like why why tell somebody they can't have something? It's like that's like the most inhospitable thing that you can do. It's like I'm sorry, you, we don't do that. You can't have that. It's like come on, man. It's like someone is here; they're coming to you because they want to experience something awesome. And they're they're looking for something. It's in your fridge. They've looked at the menu. You, you, they know you've got the stuff, and they've got either a diet thing or they've got a preference thing. It's kind of like I really love this, but I really don't like red peppers. It's like yeah, I can make the freaking chicken San Michel without any peppers. I can make it with no peppers. Do you like sugar snap peas? Oh, you do. I'll put sugar snap peas in it. It's kind of like it's just amazing. Yeah, make it up as you go along. You can do these things, you know. So it's just um, part of it, I think, is like genuine hospitality it's like if you if you say you want to be in the hospitality business but you get pissed off if people ask you to do something differently than you should the way you think it should be done that's not very hospitable thinking so not at all (laughs) i was thinking the same thing 
So, Michelle, what is a core memory that you have around food? It's like the easy one because it's like, other than I think I remember getting stuck with a diaper pin when I was a baby for some reason. Other than that. That sounds traumatic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Other than that, I do remember, and I was three years old because I was standing on step stool in my mom's kitchen when she was canning tomatoes and I was helping her. I would, I would put the lid coin into the screw top of the lid and hand it to her. That was my job. But I was trying to hold my pinky and my thumb together like this to show my mom I was three, right? So I know I was three, but it's, a, you know, the smell, I, the smell of canning tomatoes, the steam in the windows because it's August, no air conditioning. I mean, we're talking about like 1963. I remember that. You know, and when I remember that, it, it like opens up all these other memories. Like when my mom was canning all of her like apple brown Betty apple pie filling stuff, I was the one who, who would, when I was a little bit bigger, I would, I would be the one who did the, you screw this coring peeling thing onto your countertop and you put the apple in it and you screw it and it, it cores and peels the apple at the same time. Right. So that, that was like my job. Those were like my jobs, but I just, I always loved being in the kitchen with my mom. Always around food. The food thing, yeah. And tomato has come up quite a bit during our conversation. Tomato's and now a big I deal understand. for our family. Yeah. yeah. Tomato was a big deal for our family. It's just, to us, it was just like the one of the most wonderful things that could happen to a person because you could literally take one off of the vine and if you had a little shaker of salt, you could just eat it right then and there. And not all tomatoes are the same. Tomatoes that looked differently, tasted differently, that was cool, you know, but then you could cook them and make really amazing things or you could can them and open a jar in the middle of February and put it in a bowl and sprinkle a little bit of salt on it and, and feel like you were in the middle of summer again. So I just, tomatoes were a big deal for, for my mom's family. It was one of the things that they were proudest of. And rightfully so. Yeah. So what is one thing that you wish people knew about nutrition? It, it, it's not as hard as you think. I mean, it's like, you know, health.com, healthline.com, WebND. If you just want straight up information, you can type any question about nutrients that are in certain things and what those nutrients do. It's really easy to search. Some great nutritionists out there that are friends of mine, like Caroline Stewart, who used to be the nutrition correspondent for CNN, Ellie Krieger, Joan Gussow and Marian Nessel, almost all women, right? It's just, it's crazy. Their, their passion for food, the power of food, nutrition, and its impact on other people and wanting to care for others is something that comes along with the territory. But it, it's, it's not that difficult. It really isn't that difficult. If you have like liver disorders, blood disorders, hypertension, facing heart disease, type 2 diabetes. It's like you look at all of those things that can happen to you and the basic tenets of a good diet play across all of those disease types. So if you're trying to manage it or avoid it, there isn't like the liver diet, the high, high blood pressure diet, the diabetes diet, the heart disease diet. It's kind of like if you eat the right fats, the right proteins, the right types of carbohydrates, have a good bulk of what you're eating be fibrous vegetables, <laughs> cruciferous vegetables, eating many colors, a lot of variety of good news. You're not going to get bored because you should be eating as much of everything as you can that's, that is a plant. You're going to do great. There's just most so difficult much for people who are driven by convenience. It's right. like, I have an income. 
I don't want to take the time to cook at home. To me, eating is a, it's, it's an inconvenient act. It's like, oh shit, it's I'm fuel. busy. It's fuel I'm, versus I'm hungry. actual nutrition. I, damn it, I have to stop what I'm doing and grab a quick bite so I can get back to what really matters to me. The hardest thing for someone who's on an endeavor in nutrition is if food isn't important to you and hasn't been important to you and you're in the habit of not caring about food, you're going to have a tough time with anything. So that's something where you really should speak with a skilled psychologist about being able to change your perspective about what's important in your life. It's interesting because a lot of people truly don't think or want to think about nutrition until something goes wrong, mm -hmm. right? What's a resource that you'd recommend so that people could better understand nutrition and also understand what these low-income families are, are going through, mm -hmm. right? And their need to access quality food and nutrition. For folks with an income, the internet is full of amazing information. There are books that really kind of like break a lot of this down, like Botany of Desire and Omnivore's Dilemma, etc., they tend to be very, very negative about the outcome of the planet and everything like that, where I think there's there are other ways to welcome people into a healthier lifestyle and shouldn't be scaring the shit, trying to scare the shit out of them. But, you know, different strokes for different folks, I guess. But uh, on the low income side, it's really difficult because I think our nation works really hard to hide poverty. So there aren't a lot of tools out there for people who are struggling with low income, and there certainly aren't nearly enough informational pieces that allow the average American to actually understand how prevalent poverty is in urban, rural, tribal, north, south, east, west, midwest. There's a lot of poverty in this country, and it's northern Maine, rural poverty, Appalachia, rural poverty, Alabama, rural poverty, <laughs> Navajo Nation, rural, tribal poverty, Compton, urban poverty, <laughs> you know, the west side of Chicago, urban poverty, the, the South Bronx, urban poverty. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. There isn't a state that isn't touched by it. There isn't a county that isn't touched by it. But um, the people that are struggling with it are embarrassed and ashamed. They don't want to talk about it. So they'll do everything that they can to act, to punch above their weight and appear that they're not as poor as they are. And then you have people who actually use the tension of poverty because of the size of these government programs and bash people that actually rely on food stamps and couch them all as lazy takers. Um, the majority of people that are on food stamps are the working poor. 60% of people who rely on the benefit are working. They're working full-time two part-time jobs, a full-time job, a part-time job, <laughs> you know, um, they, they might be unemployed for three months at a time, whatever it might be, but they're working and not, they've pulled themselves up by the bootstraps and they're not making enough money to put food on the table. So they're deciding to turn the electricity or the gas off That's for hard. two or three or four months out of the year so that they can buy books for their kids for school, you know, just, or put a, put a used toy under the tree for Christmas. That's the reality. That's the reality. I get so angry and so sick and tired of the assholes in our government who carry a different narrative. Are there people who, who abuse and take advantage of the system, the food stamp system? Yeah, there are. A small handful. It's actually the lowest fraud rate of all government programs. It's one of the various low rates of abuse of all government fraud. 
white-collar insurance fraud costs 30 times <laughs> what food stamp fraud costs, wow. you know? So it's, it's just, there are so many other things to be angry about, but it's easier to pile on defenseless people and it's a great dog whistle issue. So I just, I just wish there was more information in public school. There was more information, but the, the whole notion of exposing it puts the people who are dealing with it in a really tough spot because so they feel can, like they're being called out. How can people support this group? Well, you know, there are a number of organizations. I mean, obviously, Wholesome Wave, you know, we're, we're working on the systems change piece. Our thing is if, if we could increase the food stamp budget, a lot of people are saying we need to cut it. There are some in the center on the right and the left that are like, well, we, we'd be open to increasing it, but people would just buy more sugary soda and snack, snap chips and stuff like that. So what we tried to prove with nutrition incentives is that if you give somebody a form of currency that can only be spent on certain things like fruits, vegetables, grains, and legumes, that they will buy it and eat it. We've proven that to be true. So why not increase food stamps by 15 or 20% and then have 20% of someone's food budget be only for healthy food? It would probably flatten the obesity curve. It would have a profound impact. You know? So to me, it's like, get over the BS, quit piling on people who are completely defenseless to win your next campaign you know, what kind of a Christian are you? What kind of a what kind of a Jew are you? What kind of a Muslim are you if you can actually stand up and say that millions of Americans are gaming the system when all they want to do is feed their kid well and keep them alive between the doorstop and the bus stop and give them the best chance at some kind of a long-term outcome? And they just, they don't have the access to opportunity that so many of us others do. So I just, I don't mean to go on about that, but you know, that's... There aren't enough resources for those folks. Um, so organizations like Wholesome Wave, Fair Food Network, Share Our Strength, No Kid Hungry. You know, there's so many organizations that are out there at the front lines of trying to deal with this Feeding America, et cetera, doing their best. But, you know, I, I believe the future should be that our policies, our wage policies, <laughs> when people do fall on hard times, because my grandparents, my parents were Farm Belt Republicans, but they, they were all for helping a neighbor when, when they fell on hard times. It was a race to be the first to help a neighbor on hard times. Their ethos was, you, don't, you never put a drag on your community, and if anything, you want to improve your community, and it's okay to have competition to be the one in your county who's the best at it, right? It's that, that competitive nature, right? But the minute a neighbor fell on hard times, you picked them up because anybody could have a tornado tear through their cornfield and destroy everything and be rich one day and poor the next because crop insurance for fruits and vegetables didn't exist until 2014. Subsidized crop insurance. So it's just, you, you just knew that, that hard times can happen to anybody. And, and I wish we could get that understanding back in the American psyche. Well, I can see that the innovation and also the empathy we talked about mm. runs deep, right? You mm. were brought up with that. Yeah. And you've raised the bar with advocacy. So thank you for your advocacy. Oh, yeah. No, you're welcome. Yeah. It's brilliant. I thank all the people who support us along the way. It wouldn't be possible without that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing today and also for hanging out a little bit with yeah. me. So. Cool. You Appreciate got it. That. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the All Over Again podcast. I hope that you learned something from today's episode. 
If you enjoyed this, please leave a five-star review about All Over Again on Apple Podcasts. Please also let me know what spoke to you about the episode on our social media channels at All Over Again Podcast. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you.